From Nashville, Tennessee, it's the weekly Grace Church Nashville podcast. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at Grace Church Nash and use the hashtag located in the podcast description. And now here's Lyndall Cooler with this week's message. I am concerned when I look at the earth and the world and the church. I'm very concerned. I'm concerned because it's almost like we're whistling in the graveyard. We're walking through the graveyard whistling, paying no attention. But let me just out, not prepared notes, off the cuff. Everything in this book will happen exactly as it says. Okay? And we're watching stuff happen right now. And you may not be aware of it because you haven't heard Bible prophecy teaching in so many years and you've fallen asleep. But you need to understand something. Something happened the 1st of March that leads to a one world religion that the Antichrist will be a part of. And it didn't even get newsworthy in America. It's called the Abrahamic Family Temple in Dubai, opened in Dubai. March 1. It is three beautiful, gorgeous white buildings with some similarities, but at the same time distinctive to their religion that they represent. Built in the shape of a situated in a triangle, which is interesting. And do 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 do. And it's considered coexist, co worship. There is a mosque, there is a Catholic church, and there is a synagogue on the same piece of land. And it's all about worshiping together in peace. Beware when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction cometh. That's what the word says. So let's just get that straightened out real quick. That went by. Nobody paid attention. China, two million man army standing is in here. That went by. Nobody's talked about that. China is watching us every minute of every day. We are this close to a nuclear outbreak and no one's wringing their hands and no one's worried. They're on TikTok. They're on Snapchat. They're occupying themselves. They don't even care. The church is going on with business as usual and We're watching these massive, somebody said, well, we've always had earthquakes. But let me tell you something. Matthew 24, when Jesus gives the sign of his return, he uses the word earthquakes. Okay? Meaning that, in my opinion, they will become more frequent and more deadly. I don't know that we've scarcely had a more deadly earthquake than we had just a few weeks ago in Syria and Turkey. I mean, and it continues to be deadly. About the time they thought it was safe to go back into the leaning buildings, which it wasn't, they had a 5.4 aftershock that caused those buildings to fall and kill more people, another 10,000 people. Thousands of people have died in Turkey and Syria. And surely you're not asleep enough to think that this thing in Ukraine is just a simple war. Surely you're not. Because when you get China and Russia together, the Bible puts them together. Read it. I'm not going to believe in all that. Well, it doesn't matter. It's going to happen anyway. Okay? And those are just off the top of my head. Those are not even prepared statements. If I dug, I could give you a bunch of things that are going on right now in the world that tell me Jesus is coming soon. It is no secret that Gen Z is coming after Christ. It is no secret that that the church is not playing along. It's no secret to me that on the streets is where it's happening. Because I'm just telling you. That God is going to have a church, whether he can extrapolate it from a group of people behind four walls, or he has to go out to the streets to get it. He will have a church, he will have a bride, and that bride will be ready for his coming. 
that bride will be excited about his coming and that bride will look forward to his coming. They will not be asleep. For the bride has made herself ready, is what the Bible said. The Lord is not coming to make us ready. Do you understand that? It says, make yourself ready. Wash your robe in the blood of the Lamb. Get your jack together. Don't pray that the Lord's just going to come in and do all this for you. No, he's bought you with his blood. He set you on in his church. Now it's your turn to wake up, shake yourself. Somebody says, how do I do that? I don't know, but you're not going to do it on TikTok. You're going to have to get off of this mess and detach from it and get the word of God going in your home. You must do it. You're going to have to get a prayer life you've never had one one before, but you're going to have to have one. You're going to have to start listening to prophetic utterances when God is speaking. You're going to have to learn to follow the spirit of God because you're going to find in days to come, there's going to be days the Lord says, don't go in that building. And there's a reason he's telling you not to go. You've got to become sensitive to the Holy spirit. It will, your life will depend on your sensitivity to the Holy spirit. Yeah, that's not my sermon, but I wanted you, I don't want this church to be the kind of church where our leadership are asleep. Now, somebody says, does that create fear, Lyndall? Shouldn't. It should not create fear. It's not purpose to create fear. It should create intensity there should be a, a, a anguish at the lost that don't know Jesus there should be intercession for what's going on in the world there should be prayer for the lost there should be intercession for those who need to know Jesus an awake church is a, a church that's alive and their delivery room is fully stocked Somebody says, well, the Bible says there's going to be a great falling away before the Antichrist is revealed. Uh, yes, it does. And we've had it. The statistics I read this week, 30% of the church worldwide has not returned after COVID. Oh, Lindell, we just enjoy watching the service. Friend, your living room is not the church. You need to get to, you need to get your hiney in a service and put it in a chair and you need someone to see you, know you, offend you. You need to get along with Sister Hootendoodle who drives you nuts because she's going to turn you into a righteous person because the Lord has placed her there. Do you know your enemies disappear when you no longer need them? Well, you mean I have to go to church to have enemies? Oh, no, you can get enemies anywhere. But these are the ones that really count because they're your brothers and sisters in Christ and they're hurting you. Only people that love you can hurt you deep. And the Lord's trying to get us all to a place where we stop this foolishness of getting on Facebook, talking about how the church has hurt us. People, I've been so hurt. Well, God love it. And I'm sure you've never hurt anybody, have you? Low precious. It's a body, friends. There are armpits and behinds. It's a body. It's a body of Christ. It's a beautiful thing. And people who have been hurt continue to hurt. But let it be said of us that we're not people who put up barriers against the wounded. But we invite them in and go, you know, we're just going to love you anyway. We're going to love you anyway. You're obnoxious as the day is long. We're going to love you anyway. I was watching something on TV this week about a little girl who wrote in and said to a ministry the person who was leading the ministry was always saying, I love you very much. She wrote a letter to this woman and said, do you really love me? Would you write me a note telling me you love me? Because 
My mother is an alcoholic. And my father abuses my mother and me. And I have never heard those words come from anybody. Little eight-year-old girl. This is where we are. So let's become that house. Is that okay? Okay, let's get back to worship. Now, what relevance does worship have coming of the Lord? Well, I finished last time on the words of worship. And I'll just refresh you. Out of 108 words, I told you that 88 uses were two words. You remember that? Do y'all remember that? Okay, good. Work with me or we'll be here all day. Proskune in the New Testament, Greek, 34 times, means to kiss like a dog licking his master's hand, to fawn, to fall down, to crouch, to do reverence to, to pay homage to. Shaka in the Hebrew, used 54 times, to press down, to prostrate oneself reflectively in homage to royalty or to God, to bow yourself down, to fall down flat, to humbly beseech, to do obeisance to, to do reverence to. You know, that's shocking to me because somebody says, these words are interesting words, Lyndall. What is the deal about them that's so important? Well, I don't know. When Jesus is, and we talked about this as a recap, when Jesus is dealing with the Sumerian woman at the well, he keeps talking to her and he uses this proskune word meaning to bow oneself down in homage. And he, he wraps the whole package in this phrase. He says, for these are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. What kind? The ones who bow themselves down. That's why I stay on you all the time. Last weekend, I had an interesting weekend. I hope I can get through this. Just disregard my wrinkle. I'm very embarrassed. But you know what? My shirts are getting bigger. Um, I was invited to be at a youth conference with 2,500 teenagers. And I thought, what does an old sick guy have to do with a bunch of kids? I've come to realize, and I'm going to say something that I hope you understand. I don't know a lot, but I do know the glory of the Lord. I don't know a lot, but I know how to access the glory of the Lord. I know how to carry and entertain the glory of the Lord. The Friday night service, John looked over at me and says, I know if I let you worship before I preach, I'm probably not going to get to preach. They had already worshipped. They would danced. It was wonderful. I sat at the keyboard in a weak voice and just began to invite the glory. And guess what? The glory came. John didn't preach. We prayed for 2,500 kids. They prayed for 2,500 kids. I sat at the keyboard. The next morning, I was supposed to preach. It was my teaching time, and I'm, I was doing, I can't prepare a sermon. She told me not to. The leader of the conference, she said, don't worry about preparing a sermon. Just come and share out of your heart. I said, okay, I will. That's easy. And I got up. Service started at 10. They danced for about 45 minutes because teenagers need to get all that energy out. They did several preliminary things. They turned the service to me at 11.45. And I thought, this thing's supposed to be over at lunch. What am I going to do in 15 minutes? So I thought, you know, I'll testify and sing a song. And I walked up there and the boldness of the Holy Ghost came on me. And I said, nope, I'm going to do what I came here to do. I started talking to those kids about worship. I started talking to those kids about, and I'm going to talk to you about it in weeks to come about how God has been rejected by his people for eons. Ever since the beginning, he has been rejected over and over and over by his people constantly. And I looked at those kids and I said, you know, it's wonderful you're dancing. It's wonderful you're repenting of your pornography. It's wonderful that you've decided not to commit suicide. It's wonderful that you've had a touch of Jesus. But something's got to get deep into the bedrock. And I'm saying this to you this morning. Something's got to get to the bedrock of your spirit. And it's got to create in you a love for Jesus that's stronger than death, stronger than the tides of time, stronger than the issues that are going on in the nation. It's got to be something deeper. 
If it doesn't, I told the kids, this experience will only last till Wednesday. I started talking to them for about 45 minutes. I talked to them about the spirit of God and what else does God have to do to get you to love him? And the spirit of God broke out and those kids started weeping. They started laying on their face. They started, (laughs) and then it broke out. Kids were receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit all over the front. They were laying in fetal positions, trembling in the power of God. We prayed for everybody on the stage. It looked like a mosh pit up there. We had bodies strung everywhere. And the service concluded at 4 p.m., no lunch break. No lunch break. Now, and I kept looking up at the heavens and going, God, this is what I'm made for right here. This is what I'm, are you kidding me? This is what I love. What I'm talking to you about concerning worship and these words are critically important because I understand that music is not worship. It's a tool. Music is a tool. But I also understand that there's something God's looking for. And this this thing is not only metaphorical, it's also physical. And I find it interesting that we have trained people in a church service to to maintain their dignity in the name of order. When God did not ask for that, he asked for them to bow down. He said, I'm looking for the bowers. I'm looking for the ones who will fall down flat. That's the ones I'm looking for. Not the ones who are so dignified, their arms stay crossed the whole time. There's a problem here of what we've accepted as normal and what God is asking for. This is not, your opinion in worship is not needed, nor is it asks for. God is not requesting for you to come and give him what you want to give him. He's asking a specific offering. They that worship me must worship in spirit and truth for these are the kind of worshipers. Notice the scripture never ever points that God is looking for worship. Never says it. It never says God needs worship. He's got worship. He's got cherubims and seraphims and 24 elders and the heavenly host that never stop lauding and praising him. They never stop. He doesn't need your worship. He needs you. Fully surrendered. As they would say in the deli, fully involved. Not masculine Joe standing back there going, well, they hit the right song. I might get a pinky high. And what a shame that we men let the women worship for us. I just don't feel like, well, who gives a... (laughs) What you feel like. Nobody cares about what you feel like. This is not about your feelings. This is about an offering. A pleasing offering. That the Father is looking for. If you love him, why don't you give it to him? Why would you withhold it? What's more important that you would withhold it? Well, that's just not me. Liar, liar, pants on fire. If you're not a jock, you're a musician. And both worship. I've seen you at the concerts. I've seen your Instagram. We got tickets. I think I live in an alien land. I don't know why you go to shows. And Chris, for me, I don't need them. I'd rather just wait for the video. It's a better seat. And I don't get high by secondary pot. But if you like that, enjoy it. But don't enjoy that more than you enjoy Jesus. Just don't do that. It can't be. Now, Let's get down to today. I didn't, I I tend to get so caught up in the worship words that I forget the praise words. They're very important. 
the praise words. Is this okay with everybody? Is that all right? Hallelujah. The word praise is used 248 times in the Bible. In 216 verses. And there are a multitude of words for praise. Um, Yoda is one of my favorites. Because it explains why we lift our hands. I, I grew up in church and the only explanation we ever had because, you know, charismatics and Pentecostals were the only ones who lifted their hands. Baptist and Presbyterian, Methodist, you didn't really do that. We did it. But our explanation was always it's a sign of surrender. And I was fine with that until I read the Bible. And then I suddenly realized, wait a minute. If I'm saying that my lifted hands are a sign of surrender to the Lord, then that means he's threatening me. Why do you lift your hands in public? Because somebody's got a gun. Am I right? Anybody ever watched John Wayne? Get your hands up. And somebody's got a gun. There's a forced action. You got to lift your hands because you're made to. And then some of us called it a sacrifice of praise. What a sacrifice. Got my hands lifted. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't God impressed? But the fact is, the Hebrew word yada is used 52 times in the Old Testament. And it means to physically, to literally hold out the hand, physical hand. To throw a stone at or an arrow at or away, especially to revere and worship with extended hands intensively. Isn't that beautiful? It's a praise word. So when I lift my hands, I'm not just lifting my hands. It's actually a aggressive posture. I'm aggressively lifting my hands. And what's being declared with my mouth is being shot with my hands. What's in my spirit is coming through my vocal cords and through my hands. And I'm declaring the greatness of my God. I'm declaring the fertility of the Holy Spirit in places where it's dead and dry. I'm declaring over my children. I'm declaring over my nation. I'm declaring over my body. I'm declaring. It's, it's, it's very, very strong word. There's, again, so many words, but can be actually, worship can be brought down to two words. Praise can really be brought down to these three words, which are used, <clears throat> did I tell you, uh, 248? Somebody got a calculator? 248 minus 92, what's that? What? 156. Now minus another 52. Now minus another 52. 52. So out of all these praise words, three words make up all of the uses of praise except for 52. Now, if I give you those three words, would you agree that that's probably what praise is? According to Scripture. I pulled these out of the Bible. I can give you a list of where these come from in the Word. This one right here. 92 times. The word halal. Hebrew word. <laughs> it says to be clear. The meaning is to shine. To make a show. To boast, and here's what all the Baptists hate, be clamorously foolish, to rave, to causatively celebrate, 
stultify, boast, commend, make a deal foolishly, give glory, give light. Summed up in praise, rage, renown, shine. Hallelujah! Hallelujah. You can't go, hallelujah. (laughs) Not with that meaning. It's a boast. When the enemy comes in like a flood, hallelujah! Great is my God. It's fun, isn't it? Just walk around your house and hallelujah for a while. I told you what yada means 52 times to shoot. These praise words are aggressive. They're not playing. They're not deep intimacy. They are declaration. They are declaring who he is. Declaring over infertile situations fertility. Declaring where there's death, there's going to be life. It's speaking things as though they weren't, as that aren't, as though they are, according to the word. These are the praise words. Here's the last one. (coughs) Sorry. I do this coughing thing. I got to quit smoking so much. Hallel, 92 times. Yoda, 52 times. Tehillah. It means laudation and a hymn. A hymn of praise. Tehillah, 52 times. Why do we include hymns in our worship? Because it says to. 52 times in the scripture in the Old Testament, they sang a hymn. What is a hymn? It's a concise theological statement that declares the greatness of God. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark, whatever that is, never failing. Right? Which is one of my favorite hymns. Comes from a saloon tune. But what a great lyric. I love the one that says, uh, although Satan was threatened to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His wrath and power are sure. But lo, his end. Whatever, I've got it wrong. But this line right here. One little word shall fail him. If that ain't bragging, if that ain't hallelujah, if that ain't in the devil's face, how do you get in the devil's face? See, I think we don't understand that in the church today. When you're going through hell with your children, with your body... You can sit passively and wait for it to go by, or you can get an attitude and start declaring who God is over situations, and I promise you it will change. Where's my phone? This is going to get shut off the internet, but I'm so sick of all that mess anyway. I want to show you what I was listening to on the way to church today. Y'all want to hear it? I don't know what y'all listen to, but I know what I listen to. I got to get something up on the high high side of the mountain before I get to church because I can't come in here and, and be all pitiful. You see why I come to church happy? <laughs> I already conquered the. I got the devil on the run on Highway 65. 
Hush, Dorothy. That's Dorothy Norwood. She's still singing. You get to doing joy is mine. Joy is mine. I know that joy is mine. I told Satan, get thee behind. Joy today is mine. That's called praise. That's why I try to praise the Lord on the first couple of songs. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving. I will come into his courts with praise. How do you want to get to the presence of God? You can't come with those depressing worship songs that everybody's singing right now. I mean, come on, really? You need something with joy in it and declaration of who he is. I will come into his gates with thanksgiving. Lord, you're good and your mercy endures forever. And I'll enter your courts with victory is mine. Somebody said, that's because you're Pentecostal. I said, sorry you missed out. <laughs> it's okay. We, uh, we Pentecostals know how to praise the Lord. Well, we used to. We forgot how. We've gotten so far between our ears, we can't think about anything. But I'm telling you, the simplicity of coming out of the battlefield when hell is breaking loose. And beginning to declare the greatness of God in the middle of situations. There's something about it that will lift you up out of your poverty. Lift you up out of your depression. Lift you up out of your situation. Praise is a weapon. And it is the greatest weapon in the arsenal of a believer. And the least used one. When you're in trouble and the enemy's trying to hurt your family and hurt your children, it's not time to sing, I exalt thee. It's time to say, a mighty fortress is my God. Remind the enemy who he is. Because the devil don't know that. He knows it, but he thinks you don't. Why do you think Jesus used the scripture against the devil? It is written. Yeah, you shall not tempt the Lord, your God, because that's how we fight the devil. We praise the Lord with the word. Now, let's move on. Oh, out of breath. I got over and got happy. I got to get my dancing shoes back together. I'm telling you, I couldn't hold up like I used to. But watch out. Give me a minute. Give me a minute. I'm serious. I'm going to embarrass all of you. You give me a minute. We're going to hit one of those victories in mine, and I'm going to get my tambourine out, and we're going to have a Jericho march. And we just might go outside on the parking lot and march all the way down to Highway 96 and back. And they'll be going, what's that bunch of yahoos doing? We're praising the Lord. We're declaring who he is. Well, all right, look, we better put some scripture in. This ain't going to be legal. First Peter 2, 4. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, stop right there. What spiritual sacrifices? What do priests do? You're a royal? Is that what it says? Holy? Is anybody here? Leave that up there. We're going to get this right. Or we're gonna, or, or, somebody's going to buy my lunch. You've been chosen. Say, I'm chosen. We may not get past this right here. I'm chosen. Say, I'm chosen. I am precious. God chose me. And the reason he chose me. Is to be a spiritual house. A holy priesthood. What's my purpose as a priest? This is where it gets weird. To offer up spiritual sacrifices. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
Go down to verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. I've never seen this. Have you? Why? So we can go to church on Sunday? Why? So we can win the loss? Why? No. That you may proclaim the praises. Where do we ever miss that? This is not Presbyterian or Pentecostal or charism. It's the word. You were made a holy nation, a royal priesthood, so you could proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, 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 well. All you non-worshippers, non-praisers. Don't make God have wasted his time making you a holy nation and not do what he made you a holy nation to do. Praise him in the sanctuary. Praise him in the firmament. Praise him in the power of his might. Praise him with the timbrel and the dance. Let everything that has breath praise ye the Lord. You don't understand that. You, you'll figure that out one day, that the devil doesn't know what to do with joy and praise. He doesn't know what to You freak him out when you start praising God, when you shouldn't be praising God. He goes, I got you. I got you tied down. And then all of a sudden, y'all, I could open up the scripture to you all day long. Paul and Silas were in jail. What got them out? Prayer? Eh. Praise. Uh, was the early church praying for them? Yeah, but they had such faith that when they got out, they thought they were a ghost or something. They were scared. Oh, we prayed for them, but they actually got it. Oh, they shouldn't have done that. Oh, my God, it actually worked. <laughs> Paul and Silas are sitting in human feces. There is no drain in that prison cell. I've seen it. Feces. Urine. And Paul is hanging in shackles, y'all you know what shackles are like? Spread eagle. That's what they're, they're, they're next to each other. They're tied up. They're chained down. And Paul says, <coughs> you know what, Silas? This is a stinky mess. And we only got here because we were preaching Jesus. So... I tell you what we should do. When the Lord looks down here, let's make sure he doesn't hear us complain. Let's make sure he hears us give thanksgiving for his goodness because he brought us out of darkness into marvelous light. Let's make sure he hears a royal priesthood, even though we're standing in feces. Matter of fact, Silas, you sing better than me. Why don't you lead off? And Silas said, Well, I went to the enemy's camp and I took back what they stole from me. Look what the Lord has done. Instead of look what this place smells like or look at these chains we're in. No, no, no. Look what the Lord has done. And the Bible said they begin to sing, read your Bible, and praise the Lord. And the whole jail started shaking. It was originally the first jailhouse rock ever recorded. And it began to shake and their shackles fell off of them. And the Bible says the angel of the Lord opened up the doors to the prison and the whole place got out. Oh, come on, friend. Instead of worrying about all this stuff in America, I wish the Church of America could find her voice of praise because it's not only going to free us, it very well could free the people around us in the darkest bondage. People don't need to come in to morbidity in a service. They need to come in with joy. They need to see some people dancing before the Lord because the Lord has been good. Don't tell me praise is a bunch of emotionalism. People are so afraid of emotionalism. Why? Look, we can pastor stupid. If somebody gets out of hand, we can sit them down. I mean, I've seen it, trust me. The ballerina worshiper that twirled. 
And when it's beautiful, it's perfect. And when it's in order, it's wonderful. I've seen it both ways. When it was an addition and when it was a subtraction. And that's why you pastor it. You don't stop everything just because it makes you uncomfortable. Right? You bring it at the right moment and let it add to what God is doing. But you don't squash everything. I watched people with this Asbury thing. I just, I got so mad. My mad anointing kicked in. I got so mad I couldn't even pray. I I couldn't even think about revival. I was so mad. I was like, is this really revival? Well, who cares? I don't know. Kids wanting to pray and sing. Who cares if it's revival? It's better than drugs. It's better than promiscuous sex. It's better than drunken craziness. It's better than all that. Why do you care if it's revival? Why is somebody always trying to label everything and decide if it's okay? Who made you sheriff of heaven? You ain't got nobody following you anyway. The critics never have big followings and they're never remembered. We used to say in Brownsville, let the dogs bark. Caravan's moving on. I want you to understand something. And I'm going to close with this and we'll start again next time. Somebody says all these praise words in the Old Testament. That's another thing I love. It's like the Old Testament's not the scripture then why don't we just carry a New Testament? Why would we do that? See, a lot of people believe that the Old Testament, because it contained the law, and we're not under the law, that suddenly we just need to throw it all out. It's like, oh, it's not important. But yet Paul says, the law is a schoolmaster. I would not know what I know about God had it not been for understanding the law. And New Testament Christians are so afraid that they're going to get under law that they won't even read it. You know why the reason they won't? You know the reason most people won't read it? They're afraid they'll get convicted. They either read it and get condemned or read it and refuse to be uh, convicted. And they excuse the law as not being for today. They remove the sting of much of what is said in the Old Testament and goes, that's not for me. But if we're going to get the understanding of the scripture and understand worship, we, we have to understand what is said. The Old Testament is saying things that are giving us natural examples of spiritual truth. It's full of it. Natural, everybody say that, natural examples of spiritual proof. Remember, the early church, the only Bible they read was the Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament. Anybody hear it? And just because the law is introduced in the Old Testament time period does not mean there are not wonderful revelations for us to enjoy today. Some of which so clearly define the New Testament writers it so defines the New Testament that writers did not need to address it there's a certain organization here in Middle Tennessee that's very strong that doesn't believe or hasn't historically believed in music in instruments in their church and they you know marry, make and marry in your heart and melody in your heart so therefore God only intends for us to sing without instrumentation and it's ostentation of worldly and it's rock and roll and <clears throat> all that. But you see, and they, they cite, there is no instrumentation in the New Testament in worship. Why did the Bible not say it? But, but because it wore it out in the Old Testament. It wore it out. Read Psalms. Read David returning the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines and see what was going on. They were playing trumpets, horns, lyres. People were dancing. David was in 
in, in priest underwear, dancing for 17 miles, twirling, throwing dirt in the air, stopping and making sacrifices, and God approved of all of it. So you're telling me that now Jesus came and now we don't need all this. No, 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 no. It's been established in the Old Testament. Clearly, we don't need to revisit it again and rewrite everything about how God likes to be praised. He's already put his menu of what he wants in the Old Testament. Hebrews 13, there's an affirmation of everything that that doesn't need to to be taught again. It's deeply rooted in the lifestyle and firmly established of Old Testament believers and in the early church. The phrase that comes out of 1 Corinthians 15 that I want us to learn in this book and in this teaching is a statement that says first the natural, then the supernatural. When you think of the Old Testament, think of the natural pointing to the supernatural. The Old Testament provided things that operated in the natural realm, but they were prophetic pictures of something coming that's greater than itself. In the Old Testament, they would come before the Lord with a lamb. Was it really a lamb? Or was it figurative? Was it real? Yes. A real lamb, but it wasn't as real as the lamb that was coming. That lamb with four legs was pointing to the lamb of God that would come that would be greater. You, you get, you're catching. The, when you have someone who can't hear with their ears, it's a reality. But when the power of God moves on them and God opens their ears, it's a superior reality. When God does a miracle and he heals cancer, cancer's a reality. But when God restores their life and kills those cancer cells within that body, that's a superior reality. God's always pointing to greater things. The lamb was pointing to something greater than itself, Jesus, the lamb of God. It was pointing to the fact that there's a coming a time when a lamb would come on the earth who would live without sin and he would give his life for all who believe on his name, Jesus. See, the Old Testament lamb was real, but no believer who has ever tasted the lamb of God and what God has has to offer is interested in going back to the first lamb in the Old Testament. He's a a superior reality. Now, let me try to wrap this up and hit a point that will make you want to come back. In the Old Testament, there are three houses of God. Three. It's real interesting in their differences and their similarities. The tabernacle of Moses is the first one. When Israel left Egypt, they were given instruction to build the first tabernacle. I'm going to give you a brief description of it, and I'm not going to dig in this week, but I want to just just whet your appetite for what it is, because there's such revelation here. That will blow your mind. The tabernacle of Moses, the tabernacle in the wilderness, it had one entrance. When you walked in that one entrance... The first piece of furniture you came to was a brazen altar. The brazen altar was a place where blood sacrifices were made. In the Old Testament, they were to postpone the penalty of sin for one more year. Now, what does that point to in the New Testament? Anyone who comes to God in the New Testament under grace must first deal with the issue of sin. So the first time you walk into the tabernacle of Moses, God's already teaching you thousands of years ago, the brazen altar is where sin is dealt with. Deal with it first. We must deal with sin on an ongoing basis, and it must be first. The next piece of furniture was a laver. 
The laver was made of brass or bronze. It was a basin with water in it, like a sink. Now I want you to see this. The priest who had just finished doing blood sacrifices at the brazen altar. Is anybody there? They're headed into the Holy of Holies to the presence of God. They have dealt with the sin, but they still need to wash themselves with water. Ephesians 5 talks about the bride of Christ becoming glorious by washing of the water of the word of God. Ah, that's better than y'all shouting. Are y'all hearing me? Mm-mm-mm. Oh, my Lord, this is good. The word of God is a decontaminant. The world is a dirty place. We wash ourselves in the water of the word on a daily basis all the time because you get dirty walking out here. The enemy tries to bombard your mind. He tries to convolute your thoughts. He tries to put doubts of who God is. And what does the word of God tell you? Who God is. Remind you who you are in God. Remind you of the end of time. What's going to happen to Satan? What's going to happen to the church? It reminds you. No weapon formed against me will prosper. It reminds you. It's the washing of the water of the word. Now, we, the next place we're going to go to in the tent of meeting is we're going to proceed to the tent with two rooms. And this is called the holy place. And inside this tent with two rooms, there are 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 lives, uh, tribes of Israel. On one side of the room is a golden lampstand with candles that burn continually. But they're not candles like you have at home. These are candles made from oil, not wax. What are they pointing us to? The fire of God always rests on the anointing. Oil, not wax. And before we go into the Holy of Holies, we come to the altar of incense that burns continually before the Lord. Incense is a picture of praise and worship as well as intercession. So there are three things in this room called the holy place. These three things are lessons to us as the kind of ministry we have. Jesus is called the light of the world, so we see the light. The bread represents the brokenness we have for each other. The altar of incense portrays our worship, our praise, and our intercession. Now we move on into the Holy of Holies, and the only thing in it is the Ark of the Covenant. But the Ark of the Covenant has three things inside of it. It has the commandments of God. It has the golden bowl of manna. And it has Aaron's almond rod that bloomed. The priest goes in here one time a year. Now, I'll try to close. What does this tabernacle represent? A lot of people get confused about what, well, how important, why is that important? Is this a picture of the New Testament church? Well, let me ask you a few questions and you answer it for me. Who was the blood sacrifice? Who is the word of God? Who is the bread of life? Who called himself the light of the world? Who lives to ever make intercession for us? Who is the one who pours out mercy on us? It's Jesus. The tabernacle is a picture of Jesus. A long time before he ever came. Everything in it points to him. My Lord. You know, I, I made an observation recently. I was with a, a group of people, and I, I love, like I said, I, you know how I grew up. And uh, I think Pentecostals are probably the worst at creating a machine. I mean, we can make a machine better than anybody. And we've got a certain way we're going to do things. And this is how we do it. Right? And it usually involves energy. 
intensity. We're going to work this thing up. Because that's what we do as Pentecostals. That's how we grew up. You get in that, that anointing and you lean in and you intercede and you pray and you worship and you run and you jump. And you're right. One of the things I learned in revival that was most eye-opening for me, and it came as a revelation as I was studying the tabernacle, I realized that in the outer court where the brazen altar was and the laver, those required the participation of flesh. Priests had to make the sacrifice. Priests had to wash their hands. Somebody had to fill the thing continually with water and watch over it. When you moved into the two-room tent, someone had to bake the bread. Someone had to keep the candles lit. Someone had to keep the incense going. It was all fleshly participation. When you get into the deep presence of God in the Holy of Holies, there's nothing there but God. Why am I teaching about worship in this hour? Because, friend, I'm trying to bring you into a place where there's nothing but you and God and you are undone in his presence. And it's not about your prayer list. It's not about hitting your marks. It's not about all that. Yes, do all that. That's fine. But don't think that any of that is going to make this thing work. It's the face-to-face communion with the presence of the Almighty that transforms our lives and changes everything. It's not the works and the duties of those who are religious. It's about the deepness of his presence. It's what will hold you. If you're dealing with sin in your life, if you have a habitual sin that you cannot stop sinning and you can't get rid of it, you need the presence of God. You need the consuming fire of God Almighty himself and let him magnify himself in you in such a way that these other things grow strangely dim and they lose their grip. They lose their power over you because he becomes the great central focus of your life above everything. Now let me uh, finish here. Tabernacle of Moses was the first house. Later on, David would compile all the materials and elements to build Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple is not a house God asked for. God asked that this tent of meeting be built, this tabernacle in the wilderness. He did not ask for Solomon's temple. Right? It was David who was an extreme, extravagant lover of God that said, I cannot live in finery. And know that your presence is in a canvas tent. I can't let where I live outshine where you dwell. So David kind of wore God out, if you will. Please let me build it for you. I want to build it for you. And he compiled the gold and the materials. And we could get into exactly how expensive it was. I mean, it was extravagant. And David was unable to build it because he had shed blood. With his hands. So it was left to Solomon to build it. Solomon built the temple. David compiled everything. And it's that famous passage of scripture. When the singers and the worshipers and the priests lifted one sound. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. It was an amazing, amazing dedication service. But it still didn't mean that's what God wanted. What God really wanted. Was this rickety little weird tabernacle that sat in between the tabernacle of the wilderness in time and Solomon's temple. This rickety little three-pole tent that the extravagant love of David said, God, I want to bring your presence back. I want to go get the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines, and I want to put it on Mount Zion. And can I... Can I just come into your presence? And we're going to get into that our next time because that will be a great deal of the focus of this whole worship series. I'm going to dig into that heavily because I want you to understand worship is never about you. It's about what he wants. 
God allowed David to compile and Solomon to build, but it wasn't what he wanted. What God wants is what he has right now with you. Face-to-face communion. Face-to-face communion. His spirit dwelling inside of you. You don't have to go to a priest. You don't have to go to a high priest to access God. God's wanted you all along. He's wanted you and the church and the society has taught you that you've got to jump through a ton of hoops in order to get to God. And God says, no, there's only one door. It's Jesus. Come by his name and by his blood and you have full access to me. The devil says, well, when you get this ironed out in your life, then you can access the presence of God. God says, no, I've made a way. I've made a way for you to access me with your imperfections. I want you to come as you are. I can fix you once I have you in my presence. But without my presence, you can't be fixed. So people float around on the edge of religion, being faithful church attenders, faithful tithers, doing the right stuff, having their devotion time, but never fully accessing what God made a way through Jesus and the veil being rent, the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost to allow people to access this God face to face. And the devil has played this enormous trick and he's a sleight of hand liar. And he's told us that God would not accept us. But Jesus already said, I accept you, not because of you, but because of my blood. My blood is the way for you to be accepted. My name is the way for you to be accepted. It's not your race. It's not your skin color. It's not your power. It's not your authority. It's not your persuasion. It's not your political stance. I have made a way for you to accept by father and you got to come through me by the blood of the lamb and yet we're still standing out here going I'd really love to be close to God and God's going why aren't you you got as much of him as you want and God is standing by today going hey I'll trade you that for more of me and you're holding on going oh I can't let go of that I can't do without that. That's my identity. And God's going, precisely. I'll trade you, you, for me. And in his presence is fullness of joy. And his presence unlocks authority and power. It unlocks peace. It unlocks healing. It unlocks acceptance. And the religious stand around the door thinking they've come through and they're still trying to find something to sacrifice and God's already said, I've, I've already made the ultimate sacrifice. It's already done. Will you come in? How long will you stay outside? That's why the scripture says, therefore, no longer let sin reign in your mortal body. Is he saying you're going to get to a place where you aren't sinning? No, he's saying... That you don't have to let it. The authority has been given in the name of Jesus for you not to let it. A lot of what the devil is doing in your life right now is because you let him. You don't recognize he's a thief and a liar. And you don't realize you have access to praise. You have access to the word and you don't have to let this happen. I want to be close to God, then why aren't you? I want more, then go get it. But don't tell me you want more of God. And this is eight hours of your day. Ain't no God on that. Ain't no God in that. That's junk right there. That's pacifier. That's literally what you put in a baby's mouth to keep it from crying. You're pacifying your passions. Do you understand when you're watching porn? Yeah, I'm going there. You're opening up a spirit world and giving demons the opportunity to traffic in your life. 
and to make you unsatisfied with any relationship in your life. And you're creating, he's creating a hook that's got you. And you sit there and you open up the demonic world to your life. And you have ungodly passions and you wonder why you can't get free. You can't get free because you won't stop. What do you mean, Lindell? You mean I can stop? Duh. No longer let sin reign. I can't help myself. I just sin. Then you're not the righteousness of God. I can't help myself. Yes, you can. Are you going to sin and fall short? All have. But you don't premeditate and go, today I think I'm going to sin six times. And No, no, no. You walk into your day with, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I can do all things through him. The blood has made a way for me. And then if sin <clears throat> tries to reign, then you go to the scripture. There's no temptation that I'm dealing with, but what's common to men. But in every temptation, God has made a way of escape. It's all here. Use it. Why not use it? Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace Church, you can visit us online at gracechurchnashville.com and find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash gracechurchnash. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time.